Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. And I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again. It's not another episode because uh, today we'll be discussing a fallen tennis hero, Boris Becker. And those of you who know me, I keep bringing him in many tennis reference points as we compare, you know, the likes of Djokovic, Federer, Sampras, etc. But today, uh, it's a special exercise because we all know the Boris Becker documentary was released earlier in April last month. Uh, Boris Becker versus the world made by prolific and well-respected documentarian Alex Gibney. And today, helping me unpack the Becker story is notable uh, TV critic Dan Feinberg. And I don't think I'm in any capacity going to introduce the man. You, most of you already know of him. So on that note, let me bring him in. Dan, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. No, it's a pleasure. And uh, I'll try to I'll, I'll try to I'll keep my best to keep you engaged with some uh, elemental question and some good questions. Like I'm a Becker PhD. That's what I call myself. But I learned quite a few things. Before we get into Boris and the documentary, uh, standard question, biography type of a question. Why are we talking today? Why, you know, w- what was your path like? And today that you're such a known name that strangers like me will ping you on Twitter and say, hey, you know, big fan of your work. Can you join me for a show? So what led to this conversation? Well, I am the chief television critic at The Hollywood Reporter, and I had the good faith or good luck or whatever to start covering television right at the at the beginning of this current golden age of television, this current age of peak TV. And so uh, because everybody else spends all their time watching TV and I spend all my time watching TV, I get to be having the conversations that everybody is having. I get to love the same things everybody else is loving. Sometimes I get to tell people in advance what the good things are. But, uh, but yeah, I've been at The Hollywood Reporter since 2015, and I've been covering the TV industry since 2003. I've done reporting duties. I've written on feature. I've written features on television and movies. And uh, primarily, I've been doing reviews for the past it, some odd years. And uh, never uh, tried to do any film. Uh, but, I mean, I've. I've definitely done film criticism. Absolutely. It just happens again that this this comes down to sort of the the dumb luck of when I started writing about entertainment is is I started I got out of grad school. I have a a master's in cinema studies from USC fight on co Trojans and uh, I started writing and I came out thinking, okay, I'm going to probably write about movies because that was what I had always done. But then it was the beginning of the aughts and television happened to be both where the volume was, but also where the quality was. And so at this point, I'm much happier writing about television than I probably would be writing about movies. I still watch a couple movies almost every weekend, but, you know, it's television takes a lot of time because there is a lot of television. So do you binge watch? Like if you have to do a nice series, I mean, what's your what's your process? Uh, the process is that whatever I get is what I watch in the first place. So, you know, for your standard television show, if it's a, you know, a streaming show or a cable show, I tend to either get the entire season or six to eight episodes. And so, yeah, that tends to be a binge. And then there are a lot of shows that I don't review that I find myself watching on the side. Uh, 
but yeah, I, I think I probably, <laughs> I watch vastly more television than most normal people, but I think I probably watch <laughs> in the same ways that people do. If I'm enjoying something, I can go through six or eight episodes in an afternoon. If I'm not, it's absolutely excruciating. And the, the key difference is that your typical person who watches TV for fun, if you don't like something after an episode or two, you can move on and watch something else and, and be perfectly happy with that. I have to persist with the things that I don't like. And so while my job is often extraordinarily uh, fun and entertaining because I get to watch all the cool things early, but I also get to watch all the really awful things that people don't want to watch early. So, you know, there, there, are down, there are down days and down weekends as well. Are there any editorial guidelines that even make a question? Because I'm a hobbyist, right? I have a day job. I love tennis. I also do a cricket podcast and uh, I don't cover tournaments and series of matches i look for interesting voices or a timeless topic because no one's overseeing me so how do you decide if you watch like five shows which show you're going to write about and how many shows go in the dustbin say, ah, i'm not going to write about this <laughs> well it's a part of it comes down to the fact that the hollywood reporter is a a trade publication it's the the name that folks give to uh, publications like the Hollywood Reporter and Variety, the the publications that are centered in the heart of the industry, and part of our our responsibility or our mandate is that we try to review as much of everything as possible. And look, there used to be a moment ten years ago, hell, five years ago, where we actually could review everything. It was it was possible, but in 2022, there were 600 scripted shows that premiered on television. And that's not even, you know, we're here to talk about about a documentary, so that wouldn't even be included in that. And then there are all of those reality shows, all of those docudramas, all those true crime shows. So there's just so much content. So basically... Uh, I have a colleague who I work with, Angie Han. She's fantastic. We, at the beginning of every month, we look at the list of shows and the list of shows, if it's a 30-day month, could be <laughs> could be 75, 80, 100 shows premiering in a month. And we we perform triage. That's that's all it is, is does this show have an actor who people are interested in? Does this show have a creator who people are interested in? Is this show from a network that traditionally gets people to watch shows? And so that's a deciding factor. And then always sampling things. So sometimes if something is interesting after an episode or two, even if it has no profile at all, I'll review it simply because I want to tell people this is a show that you might be interested in. Uh, and then every once in a while, I'll say, OK, this show is too marginal and not good enough to even be criticized it's just like why should we even bother caring it's it's case by case by case by case but i have to keep going on with the by case by case forever because there are so many cases because there's so much tv no that, that makes sense and maybe we can do another podcast you know uh about you know the the tv shows but right now let's get into uh, the documentary itself so i mean i've lived in the united states for 27 years and i'm a, I'm a tennis nut so even in tennis circles, when I came in the 90s, Boris Becker was kind of a forgotten name. And now we live in the Nadal, Djokovic, Federer era. And he's definitely, if you're a new fan, you know him as a tennis pundit or like a commentator who keeps getting in his own way, like McEnroe, reminiscing old times. So why was this documentary important? Why was this documentary on your radar? Are you a tennis fan? I mean, why do you write about this one? <laughs> uh, I am definitely a tennis fan, and I grew up as a tennis fan. I played tennis in high school. I was a, a mediocre doubles player. I, I would not uh, suppose to speak to any particular great gifts, but I definitely played a lot of tennis as a youth. And, and I came 
uh, of age at a specific time where tennis was there there was a wider assortment of stars it wasn't you know the idea that we're that we're in this current moment where you have the big 3 and they all have 20 plus grand slams that's unfathomable you know you go back to the the 80s and if you were michael chang or something you could dine out for an entire life on having won the french open and it was like oh my goodness you were a grand slam champion if you were stefan edberg and you'd won four or five grand slams okay that was like you're a superstar and boris becker was fascinating he was fascinating to me because i was uh, you know, I'm a I'm a decade younger than he is, but even still, when he won Wimbledon and he won Wimbledon at 17, for even for seven year old Daniel, that was a really impressive thing. That was like, oh my goodness, look at him! And, and of course, you know, when you're young, you're gonna you're gonna flaw, you're gonna gravitate towards the people who are particularly young. And when I watched tennis as a as a kid, you know, I had a huge crush on Jennifer Capriotti when she was coming up because you know there she was. She was she was 14. I was 13. It was like, oh my goodness, there she is, biggest spotlight in the world. She's gonna be a superstar, and then she wasn't, and then she was a train wreck, but then she was a star again. The the whole thing was fascinating so yeah no i um i don't i don't watch as much uh tennis these days now the now i've become one of those kind of casual fans who will tune in when the grand slams get to the quarterfinals or something or uh, you know to 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 watch the great players doing the great things i can still appreciate the big three and their greatness even if i find it a little bit boring that you can have a, a solid decade where the same three guys are the only three people to win a grand slam that to me is is limited i like there to be a little bit more breadth in my champions though i you know i can rep- i can respect greatness uh, but yeah, when it comes to this documentary, it was a combination of many different factors. It premiered at the Berlin Film Festival, and we do a lot of film festival coverage, and we we like to to showcase things. And it premiered at the Berlin Film Festival for obvious reasons. He is hometown boy and all of that. Also, they only premiered the first episode at the Berlin Film Festival, so it's a two-part documentary, and we'll talk about this. The first part is largely focused on his his rise to number one in the world. And then the second part is about everything going to hell. And so they, they premiered the part that was all about him becoming the biggest tennis player in the world, but also uh, I, I'm interested in the subject matter. And then Alex Gibney, you described him in the introduction as uh, a prolific. And that's always the first word I would use to describe him. He, he is a, he is a remarkable and remarkably prolific filmmaker. And his stuff is always worth giving consideration to, even though I don't always find him to be a great filmmaker. He he has an ability and a discretion that allows him to tackle topics that usually tend to be the topics we're talking about three to four years down the road. And, and he's it's not like necessarily full-on prescience or anything like that but i think he has his finger very smartly on a cultural pulse and so if he's tackling a topic like boris becker or like lance armstrong you know that the topic is going to be worth following i think uh, you kind of opened a few few doors here and let's stick with the triumph and disaster right that's what the two uh two episodes are and using from kipling's poem you know those are the two I think uh, imposters that most tennis players talk about the Wimbledon entrance and Becker's love with Wimbledon is like, you know, even if you didn't watch a ball being hit by him, you know, like he's a Wimbledon champion first and foremost. 
I'm trying to like put myself in in a position of an audience who didn't know about him. So we both know about him. So it kind of uh, makes a documentary. You know, there is an entry point. There are expectations. Can you can you put yourself in a position of someone who didn't know? I know it's kind of a hypothetical question now because you already have followed his career. So from that stance, uh, what kind of a documentary will capture someone's attention? Because I also read your review that you thought it was kind of done over. There were some things maybe editing or some things were repetitive if I get from the review. And I'll put that in the show notes uh, for the listeners to read in. So you think uh, could have been condensed or you think the triumph part was needed to get to uh, the disaster. You know, he went to prison and what did the sequence make sense? If let's put it this way. I think it makes sense. And I think that it does capture the two reasons why people would be interested in Boris Becker. If they didn't grow up watching tennis in the eighties and nineties, I think if you grew up watching tennis in the eighties and nineties, you're an obvious audience for it and and you'll have a an interest because Boris Becker was a a unique tennis player in a moment where there were a lot of unique tennis players and I don't know that it's necessarily quite the same today in terms of the diversity of personalities I think there obviously are I don't know I assume you've watched uh, Breakpoint the Netflix series right yeah I th- I think that I think that series does a good job of of kind of reminding viewers who who might be a little bit like me and who might have tuned out on tennis because of an overdose of the big three, that there really are all of these other personalities on the fringes and, and who are on the verge of becoming central. But in the eighties, it really did feel like there were, everyone was different and you, and you could choose your favorite player based on, on someone who aligned directly with your sensibility and with your personality and the way that you would like to believe that you would behave on court. And whether that was somebody as let's say boring and wooden, but also fantastic as an Yvonne Lendl or something, you know, I don't know that anyone watched Yvonne Lendl and said, God, I, I love that personality. I'm just, that is me all over right there. But on the other hand, you could watch the way he played tennis and go, oh, my goodness, this is a fantastic player, even if he's boring as heck. But if that didn't work for you, you had McEnroe and Connors, who were both mercurial and geniuses in their own way. You had uh, Bjorn Borg, who was just on a different level in certain ways, you know, both with the artistry and with the the charismatic personality. But Boris Becker was a different thing. And it starts with how young he was when he started. Just just the youth is kind of the initial hook. It's this is a guy who was 17. And there were these these Wunderkins at the time. And it's been less in the past handful of years because there was a solid decade where if you were a 17-year-old kid or an 18-year-old kid, you would reach one of the big three in the in the quarterfinals or in the the second round of a tournament and you get bumped. And so there wouldn't be that that person who was a 17-year-old or an 18-year-old who would make the run because you knew who was going to win the tournament. But back then it wasn't the case. You could have a Michael Chang who would come out of nowhere as this teenager who people barely knew and win a grand slam. And Becker doing that and doing it the way he did it with the power that he had with the the almost death-defying ability or willingness to throw his body around the court. And I think that's something that the first episode captures wonderfully. Like, I think it shows you, okay, we think of the game as being remarkably different. We think of it as being technical leaps and bounds forward now because everybody has 
technology in their rackets. The balls are different. Uh, everybody has their various scientific innovations that allow them to play for however long. There's whatever weird things that Novak Djokovic does that allow him to stay in shape because he's insane. Boris Becker didn't have that. He had a, he had a drive. You know, he didn't have the technology. He had the drive. He had coaching. He had a, a, a mania. And I think that's captured here. And then the second part shows how if you're someone who has that mania and you're someone who has dedicated your entire life towards achieving a thing, and that thing is I'm going to be number one in the world, but you know that that thing is a thing that isn't going to be a thing you can do forever. You know that you're going to reach 29, 30, and you're not going to be able to do it anymore but you know you're going to live to be 85 or 90, what do the other 50 years of your life look like? And you can do so many things and you can have so many aspirations, but if you do dumb things as part of them, and there's no question that Boris Becker did dumb things as part of his post-playing life, you're going to have a downfall. And so I don't know that the downfall is all that different from what countless other players have had in countless other sports, the idea of an athlete who is a professional athlete who mismanaged his money and went broke is, you know, tales old as time. But the specificity of the fact that he actually went to jail for it, the number of rich people who do the things that Boris Becker was involved in who don't go to jail for it, I think is probably like in the 90 to 95 percent range. The thing he went to jail for, people don't go to jail for. I mean, yes, some people do, but not people with his resources usually. So I think that those are kind of the angles as you have the guy who was incredibly young who did an unprecedented thing, and then a guy who, whose downfall was very public, and it reached a bottom. It, it reached a, he went to jail, he, and now he's bouncing back. And kind of seeing those two pieces go together, I think, is, is why it is set up the way it is. Do I think that he could, that Alex Gibney could have made the documentary in 95 minutes to 100 minutes? Absolutely. And told the exact same story. But I, I think if you're, if you're caught up in it entirely, then there's no reason why it shouldn't be four hours long. But if your attention is wandering, you definitely could mm. wonder why it was the feature. <laughs> No, that's that's a good reality check because, you know, as I've admitted, I'm a huge fan and I enjoyed the triumph part more because it brought back so many old memories. And there was a footage of him losing in Australia where he, his coach and him part ways. Uh, and I think that was God sent for a fan like me, even though he lost, but I've never seen that match. And there was not much footage of that match on even on YouTube, unless there it is now I've been searched for a while. So I think tennis wise, uh, I mean, you are here to criticize this, but I, I, I will just <laughs> add one no, one note. Mayor criticism for a fan like me is his uh, separation with his first coach, Gunther Bosch. They didn't speak for a decade. I so desperately tried to get Bosch on a podcast, but he's too old, doesn't give interviews. So someone who is part of Romanian tennis was on my podcast and said they didn't speak for a decade. So I think that was a miss uh, from Gibney's account because that should have been mentioned. The focus was more on Tyriak, who was Bosch's friend. So, but Bosch, I think that after that loss in Australian Open to, I think, Wally Masur uh, in the fourth round, left, uh, uh, Becker left early and Bosch gave an interview while Becker was still in flight that he's not coaching Boris anymore. And when Becker arrived in Germany or Monaco, wherever he went, he was furious. So I was kind of, I wanted some closure on that end. But I guess, you know, when you're trying to 
cover a fallen hero. There's only so many angles you can cover. So let me throw back a question to you based on your response. Becker is one of the most charismatic guys. I'll be the first one to say, like, outside of Federer and, you know, the other members of the Big Three and Agassi, they're probably the five biggest names in tennis. As big as Sampras was, Sampras didn't sell. Sampras was more like Tim Duncan, you know, like, just not a poster boy for anything besides excellence. He's not going to send, you know, <laughs> cars or Coca-Cola or whatever. So you think uh, some humanization is necessary, but uh, did we cross a line here? But again, Boris is no Lance Armstrong. He was not cheating on the court. He just couldn't pay, you know, the money and that still, you know, sent him to prison. So you think charisma got in the way? And secondly, uh, was it an exercise of trying to humanize him more? Because we're pretty sure like these kind of documentaries, when he's agreed to do this, he also wants some sort of a relevant comeback into the tennis circles. So it's also a redemption tour. There's only a flip side, how much truth you can tell. So did you see that? Uh, or is that fair question at all? I think oh, it's it's definitely a fair question. And I think that's the balance that the that Gibney's trying to to strike here is because Gibney is also obviously a fan. There's there's no question that Gibney is fascinated by this and that Gibney is is that, that if you that if Gibney had his way, he would be perfectly happy to, for example, like the sequence where both Becker and uh, John McEnroe are simultaneously talking about one of their epic matches together. That's one of my favorite scenes in the documentary, because I just love the I love the back and forth of the different perspectives of these two titans on a match that was obviously as close as matches get and and the different perspectives of the mind games because obviously that's another thing the documentary is about it's about the the mental aspect of it and then once you have once you've established how important the mental side is that's when it then transitions into both the humanizing aspect because the mental side is how does he live his life? How, who is the person he is? How does that extend into his relationships? So the second episode deals extensively with uh, the, the daughter he, he fathered out of wedlock that led to the end of a marriage and, and sort of tawdry details associated with that. But, but that's what his life was. His life was a tabloid life, particularly in Germany where he was, he was kind of a god. He, the the first part of the documentary, and I would have loved to have seen more of this. the The first part of the documentary gives this kind of fascinating idea of what it meant to be a German star and to be a German star who was associated with Germany in the early eighties. What it meant to to be the standard bearer for that flag forty years after World War II. But what it meant to be a representative of German nationalism at that point and what the good side of that was, what the bad side of that was. And I find that very, very, very interesting and also at times a little unsettling the way that the German press elevated him to this impossible level. And, and you think, OK, well, this is kind of the things that the German personality does to does to heroes and stars is they elevate them beyond uh, beyond the level of human. But then discovering that those heroes are human that's where the second episode comes in and and i think that's i think it's very interesting i think the problem for me with the documentary is that gibney is interested and this is kind of the text the the theme of my review is that gibney is fascinated by liars he's fascinated by public liars and by the idea of what a forward-facing person or a forward-facing company or a forward-facing institution what they do when we're not watching and then what happens when those things are exposed and 
a lot of the things that Gibney needs to make the documentary compelling are these grand lies, these grand missteps. And Becker's missteps aren't that grand. They're, he trusted the wrong people in financial circumstances and did some really dumb things that if he had just had one good accountant, he wouldn't have gotten involved in. It's like as simple as that. If he hadn't had business managers who were criminals, there was nothing that he particularly did that was illegal. He just trusted the wrong people and kept trusting them and bad things followed. Obviously, as a as a human, you know, as a as a man and a husband and a whatever, he had his flaws and you can condemn him all you want or as little as you want for that. But but in terms of what he actually did that got him sent to prison, watching the documentary, I was struck over and over again by how unimpressive a lot of it was, by how unnefarious it was. It wasn't like he scammed orphans out of money. It wasn't like he he got all of his friends to invest in a in a shell corporation and then ran off to a an island. He he put money into the hands of the wrong people and then tried to dodge taxes. And in, in the United States, dodging taxes at a certain point is a badge of honor more than it's a thing that people go to jail for. So so that was and I kind of wondered if I would have liked the documentary more if the things that had been part of his downfall had been more remarkable. But, you know, you, you can't make Boris Becker into a bigger criminal than he was. Yeah, many Wall Street folks will say, been there, done that, right? Oh, so, God. Like, uh, compared, compared to the things that business people and politicians do in the public spotlight in the United States and where they just express pride. I don't want to get political, but but the person who we had as president spent four years talking about what he did or didn't pay in taxes. And his ultimate thesis was, if I didn't pay taxes, it was the problem with the tax code, not with me. Well, and from a legal sense, the fact that he isn't in jail suggests that he was right. So, so yeah. Yeah, yeah there you go. So anyway, let's stick to the lying part. And again, <laughs> as a fan, you know, I'm glad, you know, uh, he captured this because uh, Becker is a storyteller, but a lot of times it's my famous saying, why get facts in the way when I have a good story to tell? So like that story with sleeping pills in the documentary was 5 a.m. on Wimbledon final in 1990. I've read somewhere it was 4 a.m. But those are like minor details. It's his story. It can change. I get it. But the the but the part that bothered me was the blowing kisses to Brooke Shields. That was <laughs> never known. No, one, if he did it, it's a shame on him. But it was it never came out even then because the handshake was very cordial at the Wimbledon 95 semis, which is one of my favorite matches because I wasn't a big Agassi fan. So it was like a coming of age match for me. Finally, Becker beats him. But going back to the story, Barbara didn't know. Uh, so I think it was a good way for Gibney to exercise the lies. But you're right. Like, what were these lies amounting to? It doesn't make him a criminal. He's a storyteller who's always trying to like put his story in the center, wants to be the attention of the room. I get it. I followed him. So if you have to second guess, uh, why was why was so much emphasis on his lies? You think, is it just trying to paint a picture or was making story more compelling? I think it's I think it's just a Gibney fascination. I think I think it's a thing that he's interested in. And it's, you know, it's been successful for him. And if you go back and watch the Armstrong lie, uh, which was Gibney's film about Lance Armstrong, and which is for me, 
my favorite of Alex Gibney's films. Uh, and I, and no one ever talks about it. Everyone talks about his Enron documentary and, uh, and his Guantanamo Bay documentary. Those are kind of the things that people say are their favorite or the Scientology documentaries. Lots of, he's done a lot of good influential documentaries, but for me, the Armstrong lie is interesting because um, he had done these interviews with Lance Armstrong when Lance Armstrong was in one of his ascendant modes. And you could see in those interviews, a certain kind of hero worship. And then you could see in subsequent interviews the betrayal that Alex Gibney felt as a documentarian. The idea of, I put myself into this documentary, I trusted this person, I ran the camera, therefore I assume they're going to tell me the truth, why did he lie? And that's the entire thing he's grappling with. And you can see in Boom Boom that he's trying to reproduce a similar feeling but with a very, very different set of lies. And he's trying to grapple with what it does or doesn't mean to be lied to in this case. And as you say, the the lies that he points out that Becker tells in the documentary and that he's told over the years, they aren't particularly meaningful. And, and like in most cases, they could be as simple as that's the way Boris Becker remembers it. If he remembers it wrong, it's been 30 years. Why, why do we assume it's going to be something that he remembers with perfect clarity? But also, as you say, if Boris Becker is a fabulist, if he is a storyteller, if that is the thing that he has made his living post-tennis doing, you know, he's been a tennis co uh, commentator, It's he tells stories. So none of the lies that he points out in the documentary to me feel meaningful. And again, the difference between the lies that Lance Armstrong told, wherein it became a global scam, albeit a global scam that did dedicate hundreds of millions of dollars to cancer research. We we can't we can't deny that that was a thing that he did while in the process cheating and devaluing an entire sport. But again, completely different scale from anything that Boris Pecker did. I gave however much of my money to Lance Armstrong for those silly little bracelets and and his cancer research, whatever. Not much, but some. Uh, <laughs> Boris Becker got zeroed of my dollars. I don't. I couldn't care less about the lies or scams that he told. They didn't impact me at all. Whereas with Lance Armstrong, there was the feeling that he did in fact scam all of us. That it was a lie that was told to the world, and. I don't know that there's the same feeling about Boris Becker. He told stories. He he, he told stories. He told stories as part of building up a, a legend around himself, but also as part of his own confidence, which was one of the things that drove him. So it's it's trying to grapple with what it means to lie in different contexts and when a lie is something that you want to call out in front of the world and when it's just something where you want to go, okay, that's not exactly what happened, but who's been hurt in this situation? Yeah, absolutely right. And so again, maybe a deeper dive into an already asked question. So you already, you know, we already talked about Lance Armstrong. So do you think uh, for sports watching, like uh, even this documentary, uh, you know, if uh, like I saw Diego Maradona documentary, I didn't know much about football. So it was very intriguing watch because I was coming in from a very uninformed knowledge of, of the man. I knew he had the hand of God and helped Argentina win the World Cup and was one of the most celebrated soccer players after Pelé. But uh, I didn't know anything about his life. So but here uh, with Becker and also Armstrong case was so much more public. 
uh, is Becker a good enough subject? Because now what I'm driving from deriving from your response in your article, there's really not much. He's a fallen hero for sure, but they have uh, there have been many who have fallen a lot steeper. And, and the larger question is, uh, if Becker was a cheat within the sport, then I think the story is more compelling. Because right now it's just like, you know, uh, financial management gone ma- bad and uh, just living a very hefty lifestyle and not paying your bills. That's what pretty much it is. I, I think that's absolutely true. And I think that that's kind of, that's a, a difference that I don't know that Gibney fully grapples with or fully understands that there is a large difference between scamming the world, also scamming your sport. And again, that's not a thing that Boris Becker did. He And and even when you talk about something like blowing kisses at Brooke Shields, is that bad sportsmanship? Of course it is. But is it is it in any way damaging to the game? No, not in the least bit. There, I, t- to me, that is that is significantly less damaging to the game than any number of uh, of temper tantrums that John McEnroe threw or however much, those are all things where you would sit back much more significantly and look at them and go, I, I can't believe that we're, we're treating that person as a hero. They're, they're, they're a child and they're making a mockery of the game. I don't know that Becker really, for the most part, does that. I think that it's absolutely entirely fair to be interested and fascinated by Boris Becker and his stardom um, and, and, the sport and the way he played it. And I think you could follow that forever. I just think that the second half of the documentary tries making it into a much bigger story. And I don't mean a bigger story in terms of significance. I just mean a bigger story in terms of its reach, its impact, its symbolic or allegorical value. I think there's a there's an attempt to make the Boris Becker story into a biblical or Shakespearean tragedy and it's it's really to me not that it's it's less operatic than i think or or in the case of the of the aesthetic that gibney tries using he tries using a spaghetti western doc um aesthetic a lot there's there's a lot of ennio morricone score from from those man with no name documentaries the clint eastwood i don't even think that his story is that is of that scope i think his story is of an athlete who had a rise and a fall, an athlete who was spectacular, an athlete who was interesting. But I don't think that it's that he's this grand tragic figure. And I think Gibney would probably like him to be. Interesting. And I would like to also add, like if in the first part, another part that's missing is in 94, or maybe in the second part at Wimbledon, he took a medical timeout. No, he took a toilet break and got his thigh massaged. And I think by tennis rules, that's a medical visit. And John McEnroe was doing the commentary. I was still in India and people said he should have been thrown out of the tournament because that's straight away cheating. And that part was missing. But I don't know if that adds up to to the actual parallel and failed finances in real life and then going to prison. But I think, uh, I mean, it's extremely thorough and detailed. I mean, I love the Becker footage, uh, his tennis and uh, stuff from the 90s and late 80s. That's all gold. But I, I was expecting that part to be included because his beloved Wimbledon crowd booed him and you could see his face when he lost in the semis to Ivanisevic. That's the only match in his life where I think they rooted for his opponent and you know otherwise he always said he's more British for two weeks at Wimbledon every year than German. So that part was a miss but then again you know I'm a Becker nerd and you know I'm sure Gibney had bigger fish to fry but that left a little taste to be desired in my view. 
obviously there was there was more stuff that could have been done and even something like that to me goes under the heading of of gamesmanship you know because again i'm just gonna i'm gonna put it up next to lance armstrong and if we're talking again about about how we cheat our sports it's just orders of magnitude different one one to me is is taking a rule that is a ephemeral rule in a sport like you know how long can you how long are you supposed to take as a break uh when when can a three minute break between sets for an injury break when can it suddenly stretch into 15 minutes versus when does it become a problem if it goes five that that becomes one of those things where it's where i don't even understand how it's happening sometimes where where the ethical shift happens Whereas I completely understand how if you're taking steroids, you've probably invalidated the entire purpose of your sport, even if the entire sport around you is also taking steroids or blood doping or HGH or whatever you want to put the specific at. None of those things were things that uh, Boris Becker was doing. So the sort of gradations. But no, there were that you could, they could have had they could have had people telling stories for hours and I probably would have listened to them. Yeah. And similarly, like for Armstrong, you said the word context, that's important too, even though I'm not a big cycling fan, I would love to probably follow Tour de France whenever it happens next time, at least read about it. But what, whatever little I've gathered, uh, doping is much more of a, you know, kind of an accepted phenomenon that most cyclists or the people in the industry know it exists. So does that make the Armstrong lie uh, somewhat is it is it still normal if you want to normalize it? Of course, it's doping and cheating. Uh, a lot of his fans say everybody is doing it. Does it does it I, well, make okay, it more there, compelling or less any less are, compelling? There are several layers to that. So part of why everyone's doing it is because they had to do it. And that part of why they had to do it was because the people at the top were doing it. So it becomes a trickle down effect wherein if Lance Armstrong is out there cheating and he's winning every year, there's absolutely no way to beat him if you're not cheating. And so countless other people decided to cheat to be like him. And he was hardly the first person to do this. He, you know, the the, the blood doping and the steroids and the drugs comfortably predated Lance Armstrong and uh, continued after he flamed out. I think the reason why Lance Armstrong and his lies hurt and hurt in a significant and more deep way were simultaneously because he kept saying over and over and over and over and over and over and over again that he wasn't. So it was the it was the fierceness of his protestations that made it one thing, but also the the cancer story and the cancer story made his body into the story. It made it so that his human frailty was what the story was. And so his triumph became a triumph that was all of our triumphs because we all have frail human bodies. And if this guy who nearly died of cancer could triumph over his body and do so in a natural way and become the greatest athlete of the world in this ridiculously difficult competition, oh my goodness, what does that mean for all of us? Well, okay. But if he actually triumphed through illegalities and whatever, the betrayal there is one that is much more relatable. You know, it's there, there are so many reasons why Lance Armstrong was <laughs> he, he betrayed all of us because we wanted to believe because we wanted to believe the thing he did was possible and it's it's hard to it's hard to mimic that or for anything else to rise to the same level of betrayal because of just how primal 
what Lance Armstrong's lie was. Well said. So last question on Becker, then we can, you know, a couple more questions and we can wrap it up. So stream uh, stream it or skip it? What, what do you tell a uh, diehard tennis listener who tunes into this kind of a podcast? Oh, I, your, your diehard tennis listeners who, who listen to this podcast have probably already watched the documentary. I, and I think, I think if you are somebody who grew up watching tennis in the 80s, in the 90s, who has maybe not the same investment that you have, and possibly not the same investment that I have, but still have a curiosity about the sport and an interest, absolutely watch it, uh, for, for sure. I think if you don't have an interest... I think it'll be harder to get invested. I think it's easy to get invested in the first in the first episode. The first episode is it's it's tennis. It's fun. It's it's people talking trash. It's uh it's it's just great and entertaining because it's just about the sport. And then the second episode to me is where it overreaches. But still, no, if if people are tennis fans and people had an interest in this world and this backdrop for sure watch but if you're if you're casual i don't think people i don't think casual people are going to have an interest in four hours of this all right so let's do a quick segue to uh breakpoint the tennis documentary that was released on netflix and the second part's coming right with roland garros coming up so on tennis twitter right people like myself who watch tennis uh all year long and follow uh, all sort of tours even the challenger tour and even the real issues surrounding tennis which are in plenty so what I've gathered by just by reading tweets, the common consensus was, oh, I, I knew this already. And then also a lot of folks realized this was more like a card to pull casuals or non-tennis fans back into it to introduce, you know, life after Big Three and Serena. So uh, did you feel the same way? It was more for a larger audience because uh, folks who were following the tours day in, day out didn't learn much about knew about CC pass or curious because everybody knows about these guys. You know, I, th- so. I think that's, I think that's a, a completely fair assessment. And I, and I think that that's what, you know, the, it was from the same guys who did the F1 uh, documentary. And they also did a golf documentary uh, the same year, same basic premise. Here are some names that you don't know. Here's the backdrop of the sport. Basically these all serve as, as introductions to worlds that otherwise a very casual observer might find uh, forbidding, they might find their barriers of entry that it's just too hard to watch, <laughs> to watch an entire year of tennis just to know who the people are. And, and I think that's, I think that's reasonable, but I, I think that your, your point about how the series is designed as a, here are these three guys who have sucked up the oxygen in the room for 15 years. They are 100% the best to ever do it. But as a result, they have made it so that there is a vacuum of stars and personalities who the very, very casual observer does not know. Taking that, here are 10 names who you might want to know. Here are 10 people who have stories, who have personalities, who have recognizable aspects to their game. And that's what I think it does. And I, th- and I think it does that extremely well. Do, do I think it is a show for, for the diehards? No, I, I don't think if you, I think if you are, if you know these personalities and if you actually watched all of the tournaments that are featured in the footage from the series and you know exactly where they're going to go, you know, if you know that if you start at the top of Indian Wells and, and you, and you can go, oh, okay, I know he's going to win this tournament. So we'll just watch that now. Uh, yeah, it, it doesn't work in the same way, but, um, 
I, I thought for me, it was I, probably my level of connection with tennis at this point was roughly perfect for it. I did know a lot of the details about some of the players, but for some of the players, I was like, okay, I, I like this person more now. I, I personally thought that the golf documentary that they did that also came out this year was significantly better. I thought that it, uh, I thought it did a much better job of introducing me to people who I don't know. And I thought that because of where golf has been in the past year with the split with the PGA tour and with the live tour, I think they caught something that was exactly perfect in terms of the timing when they made that documentary. Whereas I think batch point was a little bit less lucky in part because they thought they had a year where everything was about to change, but things only changed a little bit. And so they didn't get all of the personalities moving to the forefront that they wanted to have. And, and I think that's just sometimes if you're a documentary filmmaker, the story that you're uh, watching happen in real time, it's going to become exactly what you wanted it to be. And sometimes it'll become a little bit less. And then you go, okay, here's, here's what I can do with what I have. And I think that that's what they did on match point. I think they made the best they could with a story that was not exactly the story that they hoped it was going to be. Sure. So I'm going to use this last question as a larger question, and hopefully I can try to make sense to you, what I'm <laughs> presenting here. So what is a good documentary? And the use case I'm going to use is The Last Dance, uh, the Chicago Bulls last season that came out uh, the first or second month of the pandemic back in 2020. I'm a huge Jordan fan. That was my entry point to NBA basketball and didn't care to follow much after 2004. So it was God sent, you know, there was no live sports. and But then hagiography is a word that keeps coming up. And that's that documentary totally fills all the you know check boxes for it's coming from the horse's mouth. And Jordan, unlike Becker, in his verse storytelling moments, will never be underselling himself. He's like you know he's the definition of what alpha sports athletes are. And there's never a moment, even 22 years after his retirement. So was it enjoyable? Absolutely for me. But now with your criticism hat on. What is the definition of a documentary? And even using breakpoint criticism, there are a lot of issues in tennis, but when the storytellers have permission granted by ATP and WTA, so it's going to be a promotional documentary, meet the players. It's never going to be a documentary where honesty or some issues or some introspection is done. So tell the listeners here, what is a simple definition of a documentary if there <laughs> is one? How do we even objectively come to a conclusion? Because the intent and uh, Breakpoint was not about introspection and and Jordan was being Jordan. I, I think that, um, OK, A, there's a there's no simple definition. So that part, so so we can move on. We can move on there easily. There's no there's no one one definition. No, I think you I think, you know, it when you see it, I think, you know, if something feels like it's promotional versus whether it's actually a piece of filmmaking, whether, you know, it's who who or what is steering the story is the story being steered by a filmmaker slash storyteller who has things on their mind that they want to tell um, versus is it being steered by an entity, et cetera. You know, I am a, uh, a huge ESPN 30 for 30 fan. I've, I've seen them all. And at some point I, I had ranked them all, but now there have been so many that I can't do that. And for me, the 30 for 30 documentaries were always most interesting when they were focused on the least visible of the stories when they were telling, when it was something where you said, okay, that is not a story I knew, but that is a story that only that filmmaker wanted to tell. And it is visible in every 
moment of the film, that it is a passion project to get this story into the world versus the documentary of those initial 30 for 30s, the Boston Red Sox uh, 2004 postseason documentary. Uh, I think it's four days in September or seven days in September, whatever it is. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge Red Sox fan. Love that period. Makes me happy every time I see uh, David Ortiz hit home runs, uh, beating the Yankees, all of that. It's a horrible documentary. It's just a brutally bad documentary. And it's the only one of that initial batch that was directly affiliated with a professional sports league. It was the only one where it was MLB Films Presents. It wasn't a documentary uh, and it wasn't a documentary director who was telling the story. Um. And with The Last Dance, it is to some degree, it's always going to be Michael Jordan is the focus of the story. Michael Jordan had access to all of the footage. They couldn't have made that documentary without Michael Jordan saying, here is the footage, here is the story, here is what I am allowing you to tell. At the same time, Michael Jordan was the story of those Bulls teams. It's not like you're, it's not like you're making, you know, it's not like, uh, um, God, I don't even know who the who. It's not like Steve Kerr had said, "Here, I've got all this footage. Now you're going to make a story about those Bulls championship teams, but it's really going to be all about Steve Kerr." <laughs> Might have been interesting because Steve Kerr is an interesting guy, but you wouldn't have done it. Michael Jordan was the story, but always for me, um, the you know the the O.J. Simpson documentary, Made in America, is is always just what I'm going to point out as as being a great documentary because at every step of the way you can see the intellectual process that the filmmaker is going through. You can see the story that they want to tell, the points they want to make, and the the careful underlining of details to get to the point they want to make. And uh, yeah, but on the other hand, some people really like the official versions of the story. Some people love The Last Dance. And how can you not? The stories are fantastic. The footage is great. Who doesn't love watching Michael Jordan be Michael Jordan? So there's no one definition. And every viewer is going to look for something else. If Last Dance had been more warts and all, could it have been? Of course it could have been. You could have looked at, you could have looked really deep on the year of the NBA that Michael Jordan skipped and why it happened and, and whether or not it was a stealth suspension or all of the various conspiracy theories. And obviously Last Dance touches on that, but you could have dug deep on that. You could have made it, is Michael Jordan lying to the world about why he played baseball for a year? You, you could have done that. But some people really just want to watch, okay, Michael Jordan was a kind of ridiculous minor league baseball player, and then he came back, and then he won three more titles, and wasn't that awesome and heroic. So different people are going to have different needs, different directors are going to have different needs, and I don't think there's any one solution to what makes a good film, because everyone's going to come in with different baggage and with different fascinations on all sides. And plus it was being shot live in 98, right? So the access... And Jordan bought into the idea, so I guess uh, any chance of a peer review goes out the window because the whole criteria was we let you in. So, uh, and you know that's this is our story. And also, even though they announced and got short change, but they also announced going. You know, the, the the last dance thing. It was the thing they announced. It was so like at the time they said this is us going for that la- that last championship so everybody involved delivered exactly up to expectations now might you have had greater expectations now sure but the whole thing is about people announcing a thing that they're going to do and doing it and there's something exciting about that also all right so last minute here uh 
any documentaries, sports documentaries you want to recommend to the listeners, your favorite ones, no particular order, name couple? Oh, uh, OJ, OJ Made in America is, is always my starting point. But honestly, if you go to that first that first run of 30 for 30 documentaries, which I feel like they're all on uh, ESPN Plus now, I think uh, they kind of everything in streaming kind of bounces around. Most of those documentaries were amazing. I think what Bill Simmons and the other producers on that series did in the first season was amazing. So uh, the documentary about Cuban soccer, uh, two Escobars, three Escobars, why am I blanking on how many Escobars it is? That one was fantastic. The Maisel's Brothers documentary about about Larry Holmes, boxer, um, the Barry Levinson documentary about the Colts moving. I think a lot of those first run of 30 for 30 documentaries are just as good as it gets because they're all driven by passion. They're all driven by, by a director who said, this is a story I can only tell that no one else could do. No one else could do properly. This is my story. And I think that's sometimes what makes for a great documentary. All right. So thank you very much, Dan. It was an enjoyable hour. We're up to like close to 50, 55 minutes. Much appreciated. Hopefully the listeners will like your review on Boris and hopefully we can find another excuse to bring you back some point. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, followers work for The Hollywood Reporter and also the TV's Top 5 podcast. We'll be back with more French Open episodes in the coming weeks. Signing out here, Sakib and Dan. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.